Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show Podcast. After mixed messaging around AstraZeneca, now the federal health minister said it's good for anyone 18 plus. Other provinces are following Ontario's lead. Calls for the Ontario Premier to resign, but not the PM. And let's talk racing, because it's not COVID. It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Our anniversary. I forgot to. Oh, God. <laughs> Why didn't you remember? All right, go ahead. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Now Federal Health Minister Patty Haidu says the provinces are free to vaccinate anyone over 18 with AstraZeneca. What? Since when? Then why have we not seen the Prime Minister roll up his sleeve for the AstraZeneca shot? Yeah. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's... Scott Thompson! Yeah. Hang on, I'm all tangled up here. Yeah, uh, he was as surprised as we were. Not a word of a lie. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1211. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson home show uh, between the pipes. And so uh, Will told me on Friday that his birthday was coming up on Monday. So, of course, yesterday the whole show goes by and I don't mention anything of Will's birthday because I've completely forgot. It went in one ear and out the other. And then at the very end of the show, after we've already signed off and I'm talking to Will on the intercom off air, he said, yeah, I mentioned something about his birthday. And it's like, was that today? And he goes, yeah, Will, why didn't you say something? Why didn't you tell me it was your birthday? So we could have actually wished him a happy birthday on his birthday, as opposed to the COVID gap that I'm experiencing. So on that note, I'm, I get up this morning, I'm in front of the computer and I'm doing all my stuff and I'm looking at social media and also, and all of a sudden on Facebook, one of those memory things come up from a year ago. And a year ago, it was our 20th wedding anniversary. And I sent out a picture of a picture of us on our wedding day and said, happy 20th to my wife in a lockdown. Well, that picture came up today as a memory, a year anniversary. And I look at it, it's like, what the heck's that? Is that our anniversary? And then I look at the picture, the date, the picture, the date, because apparently once it wasn't going to resonate for me. Several times, like, yes, it's April 20th. And I believe that is my wedding anniversary. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. We didn't mention it last week. Two weeks ago, we, we, we totally forgot. But we remembered her birthday on April 8th. So, um, 7th. So anyway, good save. I walked into the kitchen this morning and my daughter's sitting there and uh, my wife's at her little desk there. And I said, happy anniversary. And she just looks at me like she saw a ghost. She says, oh, my. Is that our anniversary? And then my daughter pointed out, well, at least you both forgot. So happy anniversary to my wife. Happy birthday to you, Will. But uh, know that you're at least in good company that I don't seem to remember anything. And neither does my wife anymore, which is good for both of us. <sighs> All right. Uh, feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you and perhaps how your COVID life is going. Uh, send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Let's bring in Dr. Liz Muga, president of the Ontario College of Family Physicians, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. I, I appreciate being here. So uh, I'm happy to say I got my AZ so, uh, shot. You know, I, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I believe that it's the best thing to do, as I think the majority of the medical community are saying. But, you know, if you look at the timeline for AstraZeneca, uh, February 26th, it's approved by Health Canada for everyone 18 plus. That's Feb 26th. By March 1st, the uh, National Advisory Committee uh, on Immunization says no one over 65 should be getting it. That's an efficacy issue, not a safety issue. Then by March 16th, NACI says now it's good for 65 plus. Then by March 29th, NACI says no to anyone under 55 due to the blood clotting issues. 
And then we have uh, April 18th, uh, Federal Health Minister Patty Haidu says, the provinces are free to use AstraZeneca on anyone over 18. Uh, what are your thoughts on the messaging around AstraZeneca now? Yeah, so, I mean, you're right to kind of point out the, I don't know what we would call it, bumpy, head-turning, uh, mixed messaging on the AstraZeneca um, and I would say as a doc, uh, certainly um, I've kept up to date on all of those changes. Um, in terms of where we're at now, I was delighted to see that uh, Ontario decided to drop the age for AstraZeneca down to 40. And I noted that you know, Alberta, Manitoba, BC followed suit. Um, NACI, the Advisory Committee on Vaccination, is going to make their recommendation today. So uh, listeners can stay tuned for what they have to say. But I certainly feel right now this is the right move in Ontario to drop the age uh, down to 40. I mean, this is uh, we're in a different time with this pandemic, with the variants, much more serious, a lot more COVID. And so no question we need to have all those vaccines on the table. And, uh, at, you know, as you said up at the top, like AstraZeneca, great benefits. We probably don't spend enough time talking about that, right? I mean, all those three vaccines we have, Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, all of them provide amazing protection against severe COVID. I mean, it's actually a medical miracle that we have this vaccine developed so quickly and 100 percent, like near 100 percent efficacy for severe COVID. So, you know, that's the piece to focus on right now as we head into the variants. Um, But I, you know, I get it. I think for, you know, your listeners and certainly for my patients, it's been confusing. And there's lots of questions uh, that we're hearing and uh, trying to answer as best as we can. Um, and the focus now, yeah, the focus ahead. seems to be on the provinces as opposed to the federal government. And you know, the provinces didn't make this decision. They're waiting for approval. And then on, then finally on the weekend, uh, uh, the health minister, Patty Haidu, says, well, it's licensed for anybody over 18 plus, so knock yourself out. Like that is completely different from the the messaging we're getting from these federal agencies just even two weeks before that. So now we're looking like, well, Ontario's finally lowering the age. Well, it's got nothing to do with the provinces. It's they're all reacting to what the health minister said on Sunday. That's why everyone is now starting to follow suit. Yeah, yeah, I you know, I think you're right. It's complicated with all these different bodies involved, provincial, federal. Um, and it's it, the virus itself and what we understand about the vaccines is also changing, you know. So as we get more information, um, you know, what we decide to do in terms of weighing out risk benefit does change for sure. And, uh, you know, I uh, on that in terms of real world evidence, to me, I really look to the UK. I think if we consider what's happened there with over 20 million doses of AstraZeneca that were given and take a look at their numbers, which have dropped. Uh, to me, that is, you know, that is the way out of this pandemic. This is our opportunity to follow suit. Um, so, you know, I think universally docs are really pleased uh, to see what uh, what happened in Ontario. Um, and, you know, I, I, I expect, I don't know for sure, I don't sit on NACI um, on that immunization committee, but I expect that they will follow suit and um, support the decision to lower the age. Um, and I, I don't know, we may see that that go down even further in the future. I think we've got to be prepared for some of those shifts to happen. Um, and, uh, you know, just to your listeners, I would say, please, um, if you have questions about it, if it, you know, you, you're not sure what to do, reach out to your family doc, uh, give us a call. We can help you make that decision and feel confident about it. And, um, you know, I'll tell you, I have three brothers, actually, all of whom are now in the age to get the vaccine. And when that approval happened, all of them reached out to me. One of them lives here in, uh, in Hamilton, actually. And, um, they wanted to know, like, what did I think? You know, would I recommend it to them uh, or to their wives? And I said, absolutely, you know, without hesitation. So, you know, I think um, notwithstanding the communication challenge around this, I really just would say as a family doctor, you know, I can tell you I recommend this to all my patients. I recommend it to my family. Um, I think it's it's just so important we get ahead of this virus now um, with the way things have turned Um, and doctor i mean as a person who's in that sweet spot i was i was debating whether to do this or not because you know i'm between 55 and 60 and depending on which information you got i was in or out of the group uh and then i've obviously decided you know it was uh, the benefits far outweigh the the negative aspect of it um 
but you know, I, I can't help thinking, why didn't we do this earlier then? Uh, yeah. And again, yeah. you know, high, you know, it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback. But as you said, there is already real time evidence of this. We have seen the UK. This has literally been the backbone of their vaccination program, and they are they yeah. opened their doors back uh, last week. So it seems that what? you know we're getting this information after the fact, and we're relying on NASI, who who's going against all of this world evidence. It appears. Yeah, you know what I would say is. Um, you know, just building on kind of um, some of what you're talking about in the timeline, I would say what's been clear or the benefits have been clear. Um, what we're learning about is, you know, as you start to give 20 million doses, you start to see some of these really, really rare side effects. So yeah. those pieces are new. I mean, I don't think we can fault anyone for that because that's emerging evidence. And it's right for us to say, okay, hold on. We've noticed something, mm-hmm. a signal here. And that took some time. I mean, as you probably followed and your listeners did too like there were comments from europe and comments from the uk and then canada got in on it and the u.s you know lots of different um scientists and docs really taking a close look at that so i think listeners should be and the public should be comforted by the attention that is being paid to really understanding when we see these really rare things happening with this vaccine what does it mean how often is it happening is it you know something we need to you know alter course or not so now, I think that that part around the risks is is emergent. And, you know, I, I think um, the comforting thing, again, would be we are all on the alert. Like I can tell you as docs, we know what we're looking for right now. We mm-hmm. are informing patients about these very rare risks. We now can recognize it early. We know how to treat it. So those are really comforting things that tell us that the system is working um, in identifying these rare risks. So... Um, so obviously there's been hesitancy and the uptake for AstraZeneca has not been good, which is why we're seeing openings and cancellations. And I know this just from the pharmacy that gave me my jab. Um, so obviously it makes sense to open it up to lower demographics if nobody, not everybody wants it in the 55 plus. Uh, but now, and again, we're, we're trying to get this out because I understand it, it will expire towards the end of June and such. So we have this. We want to make sure it gets out. But have you heard uh, rumors flying now that apparently the AstraZeneca shipments might be slowed down? Oh, jeez. Uh, I, uh, I haven't heard that. I'm not at all surprised uh, around supply issues. I mean, that's in the story um, of the vaccine rollout is we just have to be prepared um, that you know, we might not get exactly the numbers we wanted at exactly the right time, which is uh, another reason to just go out and, and get it now and don't wait. Um, so, yeah, and I, I would just say on the hesitancy, maybe I can share my own experience. So we um, at, at our practice in Ottawa, we're offering uh, AstraZeneca and there would be a number of practices in uh, Hamilton, too, that are family docs who are offering uh, AstraZeneca in their offices. So um, when the 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 change was made down to 40, um, we got, uh, opened our spots up and we filled 250 spots in the course of an evening um, because people just wanted to sign up and get it right away. So I feel like um, the public is, uh, you know, there's a portion who still have questions. And back to my point of like, please reach out to your family doc or to your pharmacist or someone you trust to get that information if you still have questions about it. Um, but, you know, there's, there is a groundswell of people moving towards getting this vaccine. And, you know, I would just say to you, Scott, like you are a role model to your community. And I'm so grateful for the media who are speaking out, you know, about getting these vaccines and, um, you know, showing others that it is really safe. Um, and it's incredibly effective. Um, so, now, I, I, I hope that this is what we start to see is more and more people stepping up and, and, and getting that vaccine. And the problem with the, you know, uh, the vaccine sitting on shelves will be something that, um, you know, will diminish. Dr. Liz Muga is with us, president of the Ontario College of Family Physicians. Doctor, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. And again, if you have questions, your, your, your suggestion, talk to your family doc and ask the questions you need answered. That's right. Thanks so much. Take care, Scott. You too. All right, let's move on. Uh, speaking of 
Uh, speaking of uh, COVID-19 and restrictions, obviously in the hot spots around uh, Ontario, southern Ontario, the greater Toronto-Hamilton area, uh, individual uh, individual uh, health uh, regions are implementing uh, policies that are specific to them. Uh, we now hear Peel Region is ordering businesses with five or more COVID-19 cases to close for 10 days. We understand Toronto is going to follow suit. Let's bring in Marianne Demain, reporter for Global News in Toronto, and is with us now. Marianne, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, good afternoon. So what is Peel going to do? Yeah, so the Medical Officer of Health in Peel Region today announced that any workplace in Peel Region that has five or more cases that are identified to have been reasonably acquired in the workplace over a 14-day period will have to close for 10 days. And so they're hoping that this will help stop the spread of these highly contagious variants that are not only spreading quickly, but more widespread in these workplaces, particularly in distribution centers, plants, um, you know, large work areas like we've seen in, for instance, the Canada Post facility in Mississauga and Toronto, where there have been hundreds of employees that have been infected. And in some cases, it's resulted in fatalities. So that's what they announced today. Again, the hope is that, you know, by closing these places down quickly, they can stop the spread and get in and investigate quickly as well. Uh, what about the businesses involved? Because from what we hear, these are large companies, large uh, uh, outfits, large uh, uh, facilities that employ a lot of people. And obviously, we know what that situation is all about. But I mean, for example, someone like a Canada Post, we heard six, uh, paid sick days is a big deal uh, for a lot of the opposition. Will they be getting all of that? Are any of these companies stepping up? Are they all doing their part to help this out as well? Well, that's the thing. The Medical Officer of Health in Peel Region can only strongly recommend that employers pay these workers who would be off either self-isolating or recovering from COVID-19 sick pay. Uh, they can't really tell them they have to only strongly recommend. So this morning we were actually outside of the Gateway East uh, Canada Post plant in Mississauga talking to some of the workers who were getting off shift there to find out what they have to say about these new measures Uh, a lot of them said that they are thankful that they in fact do get sick pay but they know that's not the case for so many people who have been you know essentially battered down financially during this pandemic but they do appreciate these new measures because so many of them have been working closely to the areas where they have seen that outbreak Uh, as i mentioned in uh, canada post specifically the one in mississauga had hundreds of infections and in pill region alone there have been hundreds of workplace outbreaks that they've already had to deal with Uh, Close to 100 still have active investigations right now. So they're hopeful that this will somehow make a dent. But really, the big part of the conversation are those paid sick days. Because uh, as we heard today from the Medical Officer of Health in Peel Region, one in four of 8,000 cases are going into work symptomatic. And that is contributing to these big outbreaks that we're seeing as a result. So how can we have such large outbreaks at Canada Post uh, if they do, in fact, have the paid sick days? Why Why is this happening? Because, again, that's been the big deal is that these people can't take time off and, and lose and not lose money. But that's obviously Canada Post as a, as a lucrative contract, uh, as I'm sure lots of these large companies do with their employees. So how, how come we're still seeing outbreaks on places that have paid sick days? Well, that's really the big question. I think the main question is, why are these outbreaks happening to begin with? Uh, a lot of the workers, again, that we spoke to this morning were saying that they do feel protected now, months after those big outbreaks, for instance, that were happening at the beginning of the year, the one in Mississauga, that is. Uh, they do feel like they're getting the proper PPE now, that there aren't as many people working at one time inside the facility. But that's just one company. There are so many other companies that are working right now where the people don't have the same benefits that other companies are providing. And they do feel like they need to come in because they need that paycheck. So that's why uh, they're hoping that if they strongly recommend that employers pay these workers the sick days, that people won't feel so obligated to come in, even if they've got some signs of COVID-19. The big question is, will what will employers do? And that has been really the question since the start of this pandemic. As for the measures, though, uh, you know, these closures aren't for all workplaces in Peel Region. The essential workplaces are exempt, you know, places like emergency child care, education, uh, places with health care or where first responders are. They are exempt from a full closure. It's just for the other areas like the big warehouses and the distribution centers that would have to close as a result of the outbreaks.
So, uh, Marianne, how are businesses reacting to this? I mean, you know, five or more cases, you're closing down for 10 days. If that's an Amazon or anything, I mean, that's going to be significant. What's the reaction to this? Yeah, I mean, as we, as you know, we're continuing to follow this story today. At this point, I've gotten a reaction from the workers. But yeah, when you're talking about the businesses itself, when it's going to affect their bottom line, you can only imagine uh, what the reaction would be there. Ultimately, though, if you have a lot of workers sick and they're off, that would ultimately mm-hmm. affect your productivity and then eventually your bottom line. Uh, this is something that we are continuing to battle. We're now in a third wave. I don't think a lot of people thought that we would be saying third wave when we were first setting out onto this horrible journey last year. Um, but the reality is that so many employers need to adapt and so many workers feel like their employers are not doing that. So that, of course, is going to be part of our coverage today, getting reaction on, on that side. But it really is such a huge picture with so many layers that Peel Region's uh, hoping to scratch the surface on, unfortunately. Uh, and there's rumors floating around that Toronto's following suit on this. Any more on that? Yeah, I, I heard that. Um, so, yeah, more details on what that would mean, whether it'll be the same kind of details that we heard on Rolled in Peel Region. Um, I know Sean O'Shea, my colleague, he's following that story today, so he will continue to chase down the officials in Toronto to get more details on that. But it is good news if you look at it from the safety of workers' perspective. So many workers have said that they feel unsafe going to work, knowing that they do have to go in, they have to earn that paycheck, but some of their co-workers that they work very closely with are uh, exhibiting signs of the virus and are not staying home. So if this is going to help in hotspot areas like Toronto and Peel Region, we're going to have to wait and see how this works out over the course of this uh, remaining stay-at-home order and lockdown. But this is going to be in effect as long as that is in effect as well. And we understand Peel's uh, 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 local uh, uh, medical officer of health has talked to Dr. Williams about this, and the province is good with this and in offering provinces to do whatever, or, sorry, municipalities to do whatever special checks they need if they're in a hot zone. Yeah, um, but then it still goes back to what about those paid sick days? Yeah. Uh, you know, um, you can do as many checks and investigations as you want, but if workers continue to go in sick, well, then that's another issue. And it just continues to feed these outbreaks, the hundreds of outbreaks that they've seen, for instance, in Peel Region. So that conversation is still not over. That fight for workers is still not over. But the fact that the medical officer of health in Peel Region is at least recommending it publicly to these employers to at least consider it, um, for these workers who have been working so hard during these these uh, three waves of the pandemic is hopefully a start. Unfortunately, it's a start that's come too little too late for so many workers in this province. Marianne Demain with us, reporter for Global News in Toronto, covering the story. Pill Region orders businesses with five or more COVID-19 cases closed for 10 days. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this. Marianne, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You're welcome. You, you too. All right, British Columbia uh, implementing the exact same roadside checks that uh, got Doug Ford in trouble over the weekend. Uh, Will the NDP face the same sort of criticism that the Conservatives have in Ontario? Premier John Horgan says as of Friday, new orders will come in to restrict people's ability to leave their health authorities. This will be conducted through random audits, not unlike uh, roadside uh, stops for uh, counterattack during the Christmas season. They will be susceptible to all travellers, not just a few travellers. And again, they will be random and there will be a fine if you are travelling outside of your area without a legitimate reason. Horgan also says BC Ferries will stop accepting bookings for trailers or campers, and signs are also going up on the Alberta border telling travellers not to enter BC unless it's essential. Dr. Henry also says she is looking at new measures when it comes to people from out of province making recreational reservations. Janet Brown, Global News. NDP leader Andrea Horvath called it a police state. Over the uh, weekend when Doug Ford announced uh, the restrictions, it was a police state. I wonder if she has had that discussion with her provincial counterpart, Premier Horgan. The NDP, the NDP Premier, who has just implemented the exact same restrictions that Doug Ford got called out for on the weekend and had to walk back. Wow, we got a conservative Premier that's acting like an NDP here. And that's why the NDP and the liberals, liberals are furious because he's going right down the middle. 
And uh, and I think this is hilarious. I, you know, it, she's calling it a police state when her provincial counterpart is done even more than what we have done uh, when it comes to restrictions uh, in regard to pulling people over. Uh, also, B.C. did not have a masking mandatory uh, bylaw for its students until after Easter. When they implemented their lockdown, they also did not get their online booking portal opened up until after Easter. Can you imagine if that was the case in Ontario? They'd be rioting in the streets. There'd be anarchy. The the premier must resign. Get all of your AstraZeneca out of the freezer and go home. Unbelievable. Look at that. Doug Ford uh, mirroring the works of uh, NDP Premier Horgan. My goodness, the heads must be spinning in the Liberal and NDP camps as they can't really figure out uh, if this is conservative land, if this is, because that's such an easy target, right? All right, let's move on. Bring in Thomas Tenkate, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University. Thomas, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, great great to be with you, Scott. Thank you very much. So I'm sure you heard the preamble. I mean, we know over the weekend people were furious at the police state actions of Doug Ford. Now we're seeing the NDP do the exact same thing in British Columbia. Are you surprised? Um, I'm not surprised from the perspective that uh, what we're wanting to do or trying to do across the country is to keep people at home and, and stop them, you know, um, moving out and and connecting with a lot 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 of other people. So so I'm sure that you know any measure that tries to restrict people's travel is uh, is on the agenda but the reality is how effective is that how how can you implement that effectively so there's a range of issues with it. So do these work? Uh, is this uh, are these random roadside checks uh, over and above where they're you know if they're uh, an invasion of your human rights, civil rights, or whatever? That's another discussion. But do you think these sort of things do work? We're seeing the same thing. Uh, Ontario obviously uh, setting up uh, checkpoints at the border. The Ottawa mayor obviously that borders with Gatineau uh, in Quebec is furious about that. Do, do these things work? Uh-huh. I think they work to a certain extent, uh, particularly you know people who might think twice before they start travelling. But for a lot of people, I don't think they uh, work too well. And uh, you know, and I think that's one of the things from a public health perspective. When we look at any of these public health measures, we we have to say, well, you know, how acceptable is it? And and that depends on how proportionate is it. And you know, do the benefits. Uh, off from the measure justify interference with people's lives and uh, financial costs and and how likely is it for this to be actually effectively implement, implemented so so there are all those issues to to consider when you're also thinking about you know even though our aim is to try and restrict people and keep people at home uh, what's the best way to do that uh, British Columbia is now home to most of the variants per capita, has the most variants per capita of any other province. Is this too late for them? Should they have restricted travel earlier? And, you know, again, a lot of the, no matter what you do on the land borders, that's the provincial jurisdiction. If the, if the federal government still has people flying in and out, that's how the majority of the variants are spread. No? Well, well definitely. Or brought into the country, yeah, per se. Yeah, yeah. So, so definitely, you know, with, the variants being much more transmissible, uh, you know, anything you can do to try and decrease people coming into contact with crowds of other people is, is what what we're wanting to do. Uh, but but we're not, you know, talking with colleagues who who are in BC, you know, there a lot of the measures have been a lot more uh, relaxed than what we've seen in in Ontario, and, and so in a lot of ways they're they're playing catch up, and you know right. maybe they're you know sort of trying to go go hard now uh, versus sort of an, a progressive approach. Um, what do you think the, resa- the reaction of the cit- citizenry is going to be? We obviously saw over the weekend, uh, uh, it looked like both sides of the political equation were upset with Doug Ford. Uh, do we expect to see the same thing in British Columbia? Well, I, I'd expect that there's going to be a, you know, a, a segment of the population who will be you know upset. You know, Some people will say, you know, they should have done it earlier. Uh, and I suppose the question is, you know, 
how many people will think twice or, or actually cancel travel because of these measures. And I suppose, you know, the, from a government perspective, you know, if they can, you know, stop some people by having this in place, that's that's what they're wanting to do. But but the question is, you know, is uh, will they these really work that well? And uh, I suppose uh, what we've found is that often they don't, unless it's uh, becomes a really, really, really much a police state that we've seen in in other countries where they've really cracked down, and and that's really restricted people's uh, ability to travel. Your thoughts, Thomas, on the reduction of the eligibility for AstraZeneca down to 40 plus. Uh, this just seems uh, unbelievable compared to what we've heard in the last few weeks over this. I've got my AZ shot, so I've weighed the options for me. Um, but are you surprised that we're down to 40 now, especially after all the confusion uh, in the northern uh, demos? Yeah, it, it is an interesting, interesting sort of development. And, you know, the the uh, National Advisory Council on Immunisations, yeah, their recommendation of for over 55s is is still in place. But uh, you know, given the very you know the numbers of cases that we're seeing and and the, the and be really driven by the you know the uptick in variants, I, it's it's not surprising that the the provincial government has decided let's try and get as many people vaccinated as possible, considering there has been you know that hesitancy in because of the uh, the reports on on blood clotting but but I think you know overall people have to say well like like you were just saying you know weigh up the uh, weigh up the risks and when you weigh, weigh them up the the uh, risks of those of blood clotting is so so insignificant in comparison to the benefits I think it's still a still a good option Thomas Tenkate with us, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University. Thomas, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks very much, Scott. Have a great time. You too. And again, you know, uh, if we had an adequate supply of vaccine coming into the country, none of this would be an issue. Now it's time for my opinion. Here's the commentary. Is there any doubt why there is so much hesitation around the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine? It's bad enough trying to keep up with the fluid pandemic, but especially so when two different federal government agencies continue to give competing guidelines on the COVID-19 vaccine. For example, February 26th, Health Canada approves AstraZeneca for those 18 plus. March 1st. The National Advisory Committee on Immunization, NACI, says no to anyone over 65 due to a lack of data on efficacy. March 16, NACI now says good for those over 65. But by March 29th, NACI updates and says no to anyone under 55 due to blood clotting issues. Now, this past weekend, as Canada is crippled by a lack of vaccine supply, Federal Health Minister Patty Haidu says the provinces are free to use AstraZeneca on anyone over 18, adding there was nothing stopping provinces from more widely using AstraZeneca. What? Since when? Since the only vaccines in freezers are the AstraZeneca no one wants due to your bizarre mixed messaging? But I guess this is all the province's fault, too. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 Non-essential businesses while helping those local businesses and workers who are impacted with direct financial support. Bring paid sick days to Ontario. Paid sick days for every single worker and paid time off to go get your vaccination. We also want to see a full and complete repeal of the police state that Doug Ford brought to Ontario. Stop the Doug Ford police state. Man, that is rich. A conservative with a police state. Uh, Andrea Horvath in full form, leader of the NDP, uh, and calling it a police state over the weekend. Premier Horgan has done the exact same thing in British Columbia. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Uh, thank you for the time, Michael. We're going to jump all over the place here, but let's start with the province. Um, I cannot yeah. believe that, uh, you know, we've got the end leader of the NDP calling 
the Ontario uh, Premier, um, you know, starting a police state when the NDP in BC are doing the exact same thing, and now we want our, prim- our Premier to resign. Well, yeah, and it's also kind of interesting that she's still using this sort of language, and I, I agree that they're not using it as directly as they were a couple days ago, because it would be a little hard to, because there is no police state in Ontario. Yes, the measures that were being considered or that were proposed on Friday were draconian in nature. I don't disagree with Andrea Horvath at all on that. However, if she remembers, and others remember, on Saturday evening, after an enormous amount of pushback against the Ford government, two of the controversial policies were removed. The first one, which was pretty fast, was the fact that playgrounds would be shut. Well, they're all open now, so that obviously came away. But in terms of the temporary police powers, because so many police services in, you know, Toronto, Ottawa, uh, London, parts of northern Ontario, all throughout the province said that they would not engage in the random stops, the Ontario government moved away from that. And just directly, you know, Solicitor General Sylvia Jones said police now would only be allowed to stop individuals they have to be- they have reason to believe were participating in what she calls an organized public event or social gathering. In other words, it's basically back to where it was before, for the most part. And I agree that the Ford government shouldn't have considered moving in that direction. It was a bad idea to enhance the police, you know, to enhance police powers. Obviously, it is draconian. The Ontario Provincial Police, the OPP, were certainly ready to move ahead and and deal with it. But there was enough pushback overall that really the discussion is no longer necessary in Ontario. But you're absolutely right. And I heard your monologue off the top, Scott, and you're correct. In B.C., the same thing was proposed, but in the difference there is the same thing is in place. However, to expect the Ontario NDP leader to go after a B.C. NDP premier would be, well, should we say too reasonable in theory? It's a, I find it amazing, though, and, and like, let's be honest, Dr. Bonnie Henry, uh, Bonnie Henry, I don't think there is another doctor that's got better bedside manner. My goodness, it's she has incredible bedside manner, but that doesn't necessarily mean that all of her policy is sound. And again, uh, you know, we've been masking in Ontario schools since September. They just made it mandatory for grade four to grade 12 at Easter. Same thing with the online booking portal. Theirs is at least a month, six weeks behind Ontarians, Ontario's. So, but none of that seems to come up. Yet, whenever I have an expert on, well, which province is doing it? Oh, BC. BC's doing it great. But they're not anymore. You see, no. that's not accurate. Well, there's been, points, there's been points during all of this where every province has seen it spike and, and has led the way at one time. Yeah, exactly. BC, though, did do well for the first while. No question about it. Through the first wave and part of the second wave, there is absolutely no question that the BC overall was handling it nicely. That has not been the case now for several months. British Columbia, much like the rest of the province, or most of the province, there are obviously some provinces which have been fine throughout. Saskatchewan's been fine throughout, basically. Parts of Atlantic Canada have, but BC is no longer that way. I'm not saying that they're necessarily suffering as much as Ontario, Alberta, Quebec have over the past, let's say, second and third waves, so the past couple of waves. But BC has caught right up, and as you correctly said, they now have a mask policy in place for children in schools, whereas if they had done it, even say a few months beforehand, when they saw that there was a bit of an uptick in the numbers of active COVID-19 cases, and they could have acted proactively and tried to prevent some of it, they diddled around, like, unfortunately, quite a number of, you know, politicians around the world have, including yeah. in our country. And because of that, BC's COVID-19 case number has gone up quite a bit in the past few months. And now they've taken measures that, well, you know, other parts of the country already have. So to use BC as a model, or if you continue to have experts who come out and point to British Columbia as, a, as an example of what to do during the pandemic... The first couple of waves, you might have an argument, but since the middle of the second wave and into the third wave, absolutely not. So are you surprised, Michael, that, you know, we're having uh, uh, calls for Premier Doug Ford to resign while the prime minister is smiling his way to a majority government, it appears? 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of that obviously started when there was a piece that ran in the Washington Post by a person who's actually a Canadian, David Mosgrup, who is a contributing columnist for a section called Global Opinions, which looks at international politics and, and current events, including Canada. And the reason I know that section quite well, Scott, is I also contribute to that section. Not as frequently as Mr. Mosgrup, but I under, you know, I know how it works. So when he came out and said that, a lot of people, firstly, they didn't look at the byline, which people typically don't do when it comes to reading columns and op-eds, and they didn't realize that David Mosgrup, well, was from Canada. They thought initially, and quite a few people thought, that it was the Washington Post in the United States telling Doug Ford to resign when it was a Canadian-based columnist saying that. Now, obviously, David Mosgrup is entitled to his own opinion. No one is questioning that. But to make that the starting point or, or for people to say that, well, you know, he, you know, Mosgrup in the United States is saying exactly what we should be saying in Canada. Firstly, Doug Ford is not going to resign. So you can say this as much as you want. Not you, you, obviously. Yeah, Scott, yeah. But anybody can say it. It's not going to change anything. They, Doug Ford has been, you know, was elected in 2018. He will sit till 2022. He runs a majority government. Yes, his poll numbers are down. Yes, there have definitely been struggles as of late with COVID-19. I'm even sure that people within the Ford government would privately admit that as well. But that does not mean that he necessarily has to resign because of, unfortunately, hitting a various amount of pitfalls, which pretty much every provincial premier, and as you stated, and I'll get to them in a second, the prime minister of this country has faced, and as well because he had a, basically a bad 72-hour period which actually in one of my columns in Troy Media, I actually wrote about, yeah, it was a terrible 72-hour period, not just from the controversial policies I mentioned to you, but just people just sort of saying that, well, it's just been going on and on. Then you include all the problems and the fact that we've had to close down the schools again, both public and private. You know, I agree that there have been many difficult situations that Ontario Premier Doug Ford has faced, but it's easy to sit in your armchair, point fingers and say, I could do better. No, they couldn't. And if you look at the people he has as political opponents, people, people like Andrea Horvath of the NDP or Stephen Del Duca of the Ontario Liberals, both of them are speaking on a level where they live in a bigger fantasy land than most others do. They would be terrible in that spot. They would face similar pitfalls or worse. They would do similar things or worse. The fact is that during a global pandemic, no one who's in politics necessarily has a handbook sitting in front of him, her, them in terms of how to handle things. There are going to be mistakes made, and there have been plenty of mistakes made. And the majority of mistakes have been made in Ottawa by our Liberal Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, who, although he loves, as I've said to you and others, he loves to point fingers at other people, stating that they're the problem, they're the reasons why we've had trouble with COVID-19. Once again, the vaccine rollout is under his wing. He was the one who purchased all the vaccines, 398 million doses of them, which he had to scramble around to do because he had laid, put all his eggs in one basket with this little-known Chinese vaccine company called CanSino, sort of like Casino, or Casino with an N. And unfortunately, well, rolling the dice there didn't work out too well because the vaccine that they tried to produce failed and last August, CanSino gave up on its project, which forced our prime minister to move like heck. We've also seen so many problems and delays with Pfizer, Moderna, etc., partially because the vaccine companies have an enormous burden on their shoulders where they have to not just give vaccines to Canada, but the whole world, but also because Canada is not first in line. If we had arranged these things early and effectively, none of this would be happening right now or less of it would be happening. The problem is the vaccine rollout is the fault of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the Liberals, or if not completely, primarily. The provinces have made mistakes, including Ontario, and we've also had trouble in Ontario and other provinces with the vaccine rollout after the federal government gives us the drugs. And so we understand that there are problems from that position or that transition. But, for, you know, again, people are always looking at the provinces for the problems because they're more direct to the people. The issue really is up in Ottawa. So for people like David Mosgrove and others, while it's easy to say that 
people like Ontario Premier Doug Ford should resign because they're not happy with him. They don't like his ideology. They don't like his policies. To ignore Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, as you correctly alluded to, Scott, is preposterous because everything really does start at the top. All right, your thoughts on the budget yesterday. Uh, obviously, people still more interested in COVID-19 than they are budgets at this point, sure. but many are saying that this is a bit for everybody and is an election uh, budget. Um, I guess the biggest deal here is child care, but, y- you know, here's a nice program for you, but you got to pay for it. you got to pay for half, say, uh, the provinces. So are you, is this the big deal? Is this what we're going to be talking about next election is child care? Well, we may be, but I'll say one thing to, to answer your previous point. If, if this is the election budget, I think actually the opposition parties might actually have a very good chance to poke a lot of holes in it. Because when you go from, you know, a deficit of roughly around $20 billion to close to $400 billion, and then you talk about all the various spending that they're going to do, including child care, which you correctly pointed out. And yes, I think that certainly... When the election rate drops the next time and we go back into campaign mode, that will certainly be discussed. Plus, the, the federal liberals put out an enormous amount of spending when it comes to the environment or green programs to the point that I just don't think Canadians are that fascinated by it. You know, a lot of polls and studies have shown, and this is more effectively since the beginning of COVID-19 or since the global pandemic was declared in in mid-March last year, or March 13th, I think was the exact date, um, about a quarter to 30% of Canadians have put the environment as a top priority. We know it's a pet project for our Prime Minister. We know it's a pet project for the Liberal Cabinet and many Liberal backbenchers, but it's not an issue of vast importance to the Canadian people, and certainly not as much as it was pre-COVID-19. When Before COVID-19 occurred, you could make the argument that the federal liberals in the next campaign would probably have primarily focused things on green projects, environment, the environment, etc. Whereas right now, I think that really they're spending a lot of time on this pet project when they should be worrying about other things. But again, would something like this or this sort of a budget be good enough to run in an election? I think, they, I think it's complete madness. The amount of spending is insane. The fact that the deficit is so high, yes, it's related to COVID-19 and obviously federal spending and other things related to it. We know what the problems are. It's not something you can go in with confidence. I mean, sure, you can make the argument that, well, look, it's only $400 billion. Some people were, su- were assuming that it would be higher. I was one of those people who thought it would be higher. But the fact that it's lower doesn't make anything great because this is still the biggest deficit this country has ever faced historically. And the Liberal government, the federal Liberal government, has not provided the platform, ideas, concepts, or policies that are going to help reduce it. And anyone who says that this sort of a deficit will be diminished in five to ten years, absolutely not. And if interest rates go up, which is obviously a major problem, Scott, right now they're extremely low, but I mean, if this continues, they're going to have to rise. If interest rates even go up by half a percent or more, Dear God, it's going to be an even bigger mess for us to deal with. So, no, I don't think the federal liberals are going early. Certainly in the fall, I think it's pretty likely. But that's more to the fact that they're a minority government. And historically in this country, minority governments on the federal scene usually last an average of about 16 to 18 months. In the fall this year, Trudeau will be a little bit ahead of that, but much the same way that, say, Stephen Harper was during his first minority government, 20-plus months is not, you know, has happened a few times in this country's history for a minority government to eventually then just basically start another election and try to be reelected. But no, I mean, this, is a, this was a terrible budget. It's an enormous deficit. They are spending taxpayer dollars like drunken sailors. And if Canadians are content with something like this, or if they feel that this is the best they can do with that Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives, Jagmeet Singh and the NDP, etc., can't do better, then that's really actually a sad fate that we we sort of have in front of us, that these sorts of policies will become part of the government of the day. And just quickly, just circle back to childcare just for a minute, $2 billion sounds like a lot of money for childcare, but as some people pointed out, and maybe you already have in your show, Scott, $2 billion is actually the price tag that Quebec does in its province alone. 
How is $2 billion going to be spread upon or spread across the rest of this country and work effectively for child care? That's something they still haven't said. Uh, and interesting, something that has been promised by the liberals for the last 20 to 30 years. Do you think we'll even see this? You know, it's interesting. A lot of liberals, including some talking heads that I know, have yeah. sort of come back and tried to make the argument that, well, no, 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 we've actually brought in child care. We've worked hard on child care. We brought aspects of child care in, and they've been successful. That's an interesting way to look at it. But the only universal child care or daycare plan, if you'd like, that was ever really considered or thrown out there was by Paul Martin. And as we may remember, he lost that election. That was 2006. So Mm. right then and there, Canadians were not really terribly crazy. First, about the liberals in general. Second, about, you know, the way that that federal government was being operated. Those were obviously during the days of ad scam and other things. So, Mm. you know, they had a bad name for themselves. But childcare was not a big seller in 2005, 2006. It really wasn't. I don't think it's necessarily going to be so here either, simply because, not to be a broken record, like I said before, $2 billion spread across the country Mm. is not quite the same as $2 billion being spent in one province, which means that if it was going to be effectively managed, the $2 billion price tag should have been let's say, closer to $20 billion. Mm. And I think that most Canadians would have thought that's completely outrageous to run daycare. i got to cut you off there, Michael. No We're plumb out of time. Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You bet. Have a good day. Hey, talk about racing instead of COVID. Uh, bring in Eric Thomas, host of uh, the Raceline Radio Network. You can hear uh, Sunday nights right here on CHML. And my goodness, we have not been talking about racing enough, so it's time. Eric, how are you? I hope you're doing well. <laughs> I'm good. How, how delightful to be back on with you. Uh, just just a little point of order. I just I got jabbed, I think, the same day you did, and I did the AstraZeneca thing. So I, I believe the scientists to go over the politicians and... And I think it's fine, and I, I'm good. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't feel anything different. You know, I'm not afraid of this blood clot malarkey. I mean, the, you know. <laughs> and other so than I, the horn growing out of my head, I'm perfectly fine. Yes, and I suddenly will start talking <laughs> in a foreign language. Other than that, I'm okay. You know? <laughs> yes. Now you have an, now you have an English accent. And, you know, what is I with know, that, Eric? It's a terrible thing that they've done <laughs> to me there. It's interesting that that, 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 yes, I know. Isn't it nice? But anyway. We had, I don't know if you want to talk about this or not, but it, it was it was really good. I mean, we, we do Raceline Radio. We've been on the air for close to 30 years, and, and CHML is our co-flagship station. You guys have been on with us for years and years, and, and, and a model affiliate that you are. And I get mail from everybody that listens, and I had a, a note from a nice man who, who listens to CHML all the time. He's a regular, you can tell. And, and he said, I like your show, Eric, even though I'm not much of a racing fan. And that's always a really good compliment because mm-hmm. it, we put a lot of production element into it, a lot of speed and a lot of entertainment into it. And that's always good when I have people say, I like the sound of your show. I don't really like racing that much, you know, but I, I like listening to that. And he said, what, what I also really enjoy is when you jump on the air with the CHML hosts outside of Raceline, and the one that I, I really miss is, is the Scott Thompson one. And I, and I explained, I said, well, we, we talk when there's a racing story come up or the season start, whatever, and it's not, we're not going to do one every, every day, but, or every week even. So, but it's, yeah, I, I, I enjoy doing them. You and I are friends and, and gearheads for sure. And I said, you know, you know what? And then, and then I get a call from the producer, let's do one. So I sent a note back to him. I said, listen today, because <laughs> we're going to be back on. There you go. It's nice to get that feedback. It really is, and I, I appreciate the uh, people listening to this and uh, and also to the show on Sunday night. Either. Plus, people want to hear something that's other that's not COVID related, and yeah, we've been know, hitting get out it real hard for like a week and a, or a year and a half. But man, yeah. you know, it is what it is. All right, so let where is the racing season now locally? I mean, I know you're yep. a dirt, huge uh, dirt track guy and whatever, oh, yeah. but what about the local tracks? Are they going to open up? Well, you know what, your timing could not be any more uh, exquisite because. Just before I jumped on the air, I got a note from Erica Bicknell at Bicknell Racing Products. Her dad, of course, Pete Bicknell, a multi-time mm-hmm. uh, modified champion, car builder, Canadian Motorsport Hall of Famer, along with, with yours truly. And, of course, the longtime owners of Merrittville Speedway, Canada's longest uh, operating and oldest dirt track, uh, now owned by Don Spies, uh, you know, at the corner of Merrittville Highway and um, Holland Road, just south of St. Catharines, between St. Catharines and Welland. And she asked me if I could give a hand to what they have put together. And a guy by the name of Mark Rinaldi at Brighton Speedway, that's in the Belleville area. It's an asphalt track. They have formed, and they did this last year, called the Ontario Promoters, uh, sorry, Ontario Motorsports Promoters Group. And Mark Rinaldi heads that up. 
they were able to go to the government last year, last summer during the lockdown because of COVID, and at least got the approval to let, big deal, 100 fans in, and they were at mm. least able to stage a couple of exhibition races just to give the guys something to do. Everybody had to have masks on, et cetera, et cetera. Well, so far this year, you know, again, they're in the same boat. Merrittville was supposed to open their 70th consecutive season of operation uh, last week, but that, of course, is on hold because the government still isn't giving us any indication on what's going to happen to outdoor events like speedways, asphalt, whatever, you know, whether it's, you know, Sobble Speedway or whatever it is, asphalt or dirt, trying to get some kind of a directive from Queen's Park on when they think they might be able to open it. Is it going to be May? Is it going to be June? Are we going to have a season at all? I can tell you that, you know, the season at Merrittville last year and at Humberstown was just a couple of specialty races. Ransomville Speedway, you and I have been there. That's all part mm -hmm. of the local racing scene, the dirt track there. They didn't even operate at all last year because of their numbers, and they're, they're planning on doing something this year, but it may be, you know, 20% capacity. You have to have a positive uh, or, uh, let's put it this way, a negative COVID test before you get in, et cetera, et cetera. So trying to get some kind of a directive, at least from the Ontario government. So we're going to be you know, talking to Mark in, in coming weeks on Raceline Radio. I think Tim Miller at the SPAC and uh, Norris McDonald at the Star are going to grab onto this thing and at least you know, give Mark some kind of traction if, with the government on what kind of directive we may be able to expect. Again, we don't know, and that's the annoying mm -hmm. part about the whole thing, Scooter, is the fact that it, it, you know, the game keeps changing, the goal line keeps moving, and we don't know. You can't risk people's health, but at the same same time, you've got these tracks and speedways who operate as a business, and if you're not going to have an, uh, another you know, season of gate, it's going to be very hard for these guys to keep these places open, and you don't ever want to see anything padlocked. So that's the situation that we're in more or less right now with the local game. Uh, obviously, Ransomville on the other side of the border, won't they be all right, considering they're already pretty much vaccinated down well, there? Well, they are, but uh, I was just talking to uh, to Jennifer Martin at, at Ransomville the other day, because they certainly do a, a certain amount of business uh, with Raceline Radio um, on the local affiliate in St. Catharines, and, and, you know, she was saying that... You know, vaccinations are, are good and it's going to be okay. It's going to be better than last year when they didn't operate at all. 20% capacity, you're going to have to come through the gate with proof that you are not COVID positive. You're going to have to have some kind of, uh, you know, a masking and social distancing. Tough to do in the grandstands, tough to do in the concession area, and extremely tough to do in the pits. So, I mean, you know, mm. is it going to be enough for them to survive their season financially with, say, at, at, if they start with 20% capacity? That's what they're juggling with right now with the owners and with Jennifer over there. And certainly, you know, Don and Lorraine Spies at Merrittville Speedway and, and, uh, and uh, you know, Terry Vince, the new owner at Humberstone Speedway in Port Colborne for the dirt track part in Niagara. But, you know, the Sable Speedway and, and, and all those other tracks that, you know, in Jucasa as well, kind of in your neck of the woods, uh, are sort of up in the, in the same kind of situation. We're in the same canoe here, and it gets pretty tippy because we don't know exactly what we're going to be able to do. But they might be okay over there, but if it's only 20% capacity, you've got to wonder, is it, you've still got to pay your hydro bill, still yeah. got to pay your insurance, still got to pay for this and that. And empl employees have to be there. You know, you've got to put food in the concessions and, and beer in the beer stand and everything else like that. If you get go and spend that money, and you're only going to get 20%, I can tell you this, there's a whole lot of race fans that won't bother coming out if, if they have to have any kind of a restriction. It's just the mentality yeah. of some and of them, some of them, and that's mostly over there. And I'm guessing Flamborough, Ashwigan, all in the same boat. Same pretty as much, uh, pretty much in the same boat. I mean, if it's if it's going to be against the restriction laws in the spread of COVID, how can you operate with no fans in the stands? You just can't do that. They don't have the television infrastructure that you know that NASCAR has and Formula One has. You know, and and to a lesser extent, IndyCar has the big boys can do that. They've got television contracts, so they can stage these races with nobody in the grandstands. The the speedways that we're talking about certainly do not have that option. They don't. I mean, they ran a couple of specialty races with very few fans in the stands, less than a hundred, just to stick the thing on TV, so the so the drivers and the teams could get out there and run some of the equipment, you know, and not get all cobwebby about the whole, you know, just giving them some activity and let them know and doing what they can. But man, they you lose 
is like Don Spieth lost a ton of money doing that, but he wanted to do that for the drivers and for the few fans that could get in. But man, you're not going to be able to pay your bills. And we've got to go through another summer of the same malarkey. And we know why they're doing it. And you've got to have precautions, man. I don't know. I hope their bank accounts are big enough to absorb it. But I can tell you, I'm just just guessing on the outside. A few of them won't, and that won't be a good thing if somebody has to padlock their park because of, of what's going on. So this association at least wants to get I – mean, it's tough to predict, again, because the goal line keeps moving. We don't know what situation we're going to be in with the numbers soaring the way they are now, the way we're seeing in Ontario. I mean, Merrittville's opener has already been postponed. Who knows what's going to happen? But, you know, at least get a dialogue with these track operators so we kind of get some kind of an idea that they know. You know, Ford keeps saying, my friends – we're in this together. Well, are we or aren't we? And you got to make sure that the, the, the people out there, the families who run these speedways and run these racetracks, are at least are in some kind of communication liaison with Queen's Park so they know what's coming, or you know, even if it's going to be very, very tough to predict. So uh, are you seeing a growing interest in dirt racing? Uh, obviously, uh, the NASCAR Truck Series uh, raced uh, in the dirt to start a few years ago. Uh, we saw the Cup cars go to uh, Bristol in a dirt track. I understand even the Pinty Series is going to is going to do a dirt race. Why the interest in this weekend. now? Yeah, plan for Ash Weekend. And well, Ash you know, Weekend, that's amazing. Yeah, well, exactly. It is. It certainly is. And uh, you know, they they ran the trucks, the the NASCAR trucks at Eldora. They didn't do that this year. They did it at Bristol. But, you know, there has always been a lot of interest in dirt track racing. It didn't filter back up. I mean, where the hell do you think asphalt racing started? Yeah, I mean, this is getting back to the history of the sport, which I think is great. It goes right back to the roots of the sport and, you know, sprint cars or dirt late models or modifieds or whatever it is. That's where it all started. You just carved a track in the middle of a farmer's field, put up some seats, sold some Pepsis and hot dogs, and away you went. And that's where the sport started. And then it branched off to the asphalt tracks. But, you know, it's... NASCAR with the Bristol thing and the experiment there, trying to get some kind of an attraction to get eyeballs back and try and get the ratings up. But it's a, it's a, it's a really nice trip in nostalgia. So there's always been a really good groundswell of interest in dirt track racing. It's just getting a little closer to the top with, with asphalt stuff, and that's always good. But anybody who really knows the game knows there's always been a direct historical connection between the dirt track stuff that still flourishes and is still very popular, and the asphalt stuff, like, you know, that they even branched off to things like Formula One and IndyCar and even on the NASCAR pavement side. Uh, I looked on the uh, truck schedule uh, just before we came on here, and it looks like uh, the, tr- the NASCAR trucks are going to go to uh, Canadian, Tire Mo- uh, Canadian Tire Motorsport Park, uh, Mostport, for their September 5th race, uh, which is Labor Day weekend. Mm-hmm. So obviously they feel reasonably good about that. But again, as you said, uh, what about borders open well, and that sort thing. of thing? If the border is still, is the border is still closed and we're still in this quarantine situation. There's no way they're going to run that. I mean, IMSA yeah. sports cars already canceled their gig, and now we don't know what exactly is going to happen with the F1 Canadian Grand Prix in Montreal. Formula One can't come to Canada, you know, on airplanes and quarantine for two weeks. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to be practical. So they want to do it their own way after one week. We don't know. The latest we're hearing, you know, of course, it didn't operate last year because of COVID. There's a threat it may not happen again this June. If it happens, they may be able, but it's going to be a lot of juggling for F1, which they had to do with their schedule last year. They may try and run the Canadian Grand Prix in Montreal in the fall as long as our numbers are okay. But if the border is still technically ah, closed and you still got to do all this quarantining, there's no way anybody's going to come over the border with a race team or any kind of a hauler or any kind of a series official like F1 if they have to fly everything in. It just isn't going to work. So we're still at the mercy of this damn pandemic, and we have to be responsible. And so far, NASCAR domestically has been able to run their stuff with masks on, and, and everybody's good. We haven't anybody in the game on any of the series come down with anything serious, and that's a good thing. But, you know, it's not the same without a lot of fans in the stands. I know NASCAR has been filtering some back in, and, and IndyCar guys, the same thing. But, you know, it still ain't normal, and it's still not the same. And we, we need to keep jabbing. We need to keep vaccinating so we can get on top of these numbers so we can at least get it back to something close to normal. Because if we have to go through another summer where it's pretty much dark, that's not going to be a good situation. Eric Thomas with his host of the Raceline Radio Network. And, of course, you hear him every Sunday night right here on uh, CHML talking everything racing and hopefully the, uh, hopefully uh, getting a, a season in uh, this year in some form or, the, uh, or another. Eric, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. 
You too, lad. And listen, when we get back to normal, we're heading back over to, to Ransomville. We'll do some Meridville stuff. We'll do the wing and the, and the yingling thing. And uh, we'll take. I want to run a Winnebago, man. Well. <laughs> <laughs> no, wait a sec, Thompson. I don't want to go that far. No, I don't want to go that far. We'll take your lad <laughs> with us, and uh, we'll turn him into a gearhead, too. But we'll eventually get there. It's just damn frustrating that we have to yeah. go through this. And just rely on each other. Just everybody look after each other. Don't be an idiot. Wear your mask. Don't gather socially unless it's in your own bubble. And you know what you need to do. And uh, don't listen to the conspiracy theorists out there. And uh, we'll get back to normal sooner or later. And whenever there's a, a break on the racing scene in terms of, of COVID and all that we need to do, well, you'll hear it first here on Raceline Radio. It's 8 o'clock Sunday nights right here on 900 CHML. Scooter, always a pleasure. Let's do some more. Thanks, Eric. You take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. 911.